I don't think I could adequately thank Bridge Builders enough for how much it meant to us to have you reach out to our youngest. It's quite a thing to send your child away and then to have them reach out to your youngest. And so you really have our undying appreciation for that. For those of you who know Rebecca, and even for those who don't, you know what Bridge Builder stands for. You're, a, you're those people, and we thank you. Um, did you want to say anything? I don't know if I can. <laughs> when Rebecca came to school here, uh, up this way, um, around 2012, uh, she had had a difficult time with the Christian community. And um, she was a little hardened. So I came up to visit her. She didn't have a car yet. Uh, we didn't start her off with a vehicle yeah. <laughs> or her even. Yes. And, uh, and um, we had encouraged her to get involved with Christian fellowship at the school. And like I said, she was a little burned. And uh, so I came up to visit her, and I was praying to the Lord over here at Roosevelt Inn. And I said, Lord, what am I supposed to do with Rebecca this weekend? I mean, I'm her mother. We can have fun, you know. But what am I supposed to do? What, what do you have? And he said, well, you can take her to church. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, of course. So we, we looked up some, uh, some churches online, and I said, Becca, you choose. And she chose this one. And we came here, and, uh, and, and we came in, and immediately um, we were embraced. And Rebecca experienced a love from the body of Christ that she had not experienced before. And I could see the hardness just mm. flaking away, just breaking mm. like glass around her. And um, the Cunninghams, you know, embraced her, Mike and Patty, Tim and Jenny, everybody just loved her. And forgive me if I miss anybody that was here before, but the Cunninghams gave her rides and, and um, invited her, you know, if they needed, if she needed anything. And just showered her with the love of the Lord while she was here. And it changed her. It changed her perspective on what a Christian community is. It changed her perspective on the love of the Lord and how it really shows up. And we've never forgotten it. Mm -hmm. I, told the, I told people yesterday, we talk about you all every week. <laughs> and that is the truth. That's yeah, that's the truth. So we love you. And Rebecca loves you. And she sends her love. And she wanted to be here. So... Thank, Thank you, you very for much. letting me speak. Thank you, darling. <laughs> uh, I spoke with Rebecca on Friday, and I think this is an exact quote. She said, I adore them of bridge builders. And I have someone to say about that. You know, how much I appreciate you. That kind of says it. Um, I am the American Overseer uh, Bishop of Souls, an organization by the name. I am not the Bishop of Souls. Bishop <laughs> Souls is Jesus Christ. Sometimes I get people call me Bishop of Souls, and I'm quick to correct them. No, no, no I'm not the Bishop of Souls. I'm, the, I'm in the submitting one to the Bishop of Souls. But we do several things. We evangelize. Uh, we equip. We do leadership training. And we do orphan and widow outreach. Perhaps you remember in James 1.27, it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is a picture. I'm going to have you go through them rather quickly, and then we'll get into the word. This is in rural Zambia. You think those seats are uncomfortable. Yeah. Look at those bad boys. By the way, I, I was called out to this church way out in Zambia, way out in rural Zambia, and we get out in the bush, and our scout had to ask directions, which is not a comforting feeling. And he's asking in the whatever tribal language he was speaking, and I'm thinking, this is the guy leading us. And they wanted us to go to this church because their church roof had collapsed. Again, you think, this church building isn't bad. You know, so, man. So it fell down. I thought they wanted us to put help them with the roof, well, they wanted me to preach. And imagine that. And I came in, and they said, oh, yeah, you're preaching. And that, that happens a lot. Anyway, that from there, we, uh, got, we did an evangelical, a large evangelical uh, a crusade out in the middle of nowhere, and it started from a collapsed roof. 
So I don't know what's, I'm not preaching yet, but I don't know what collapsed in your life, sir. I don't know what collapsed in your life, man, but God is going to shine his light through that hole, man. That's just a word for somebody. Will you keep flipping? We'll just keep flipping. I won't make it. This is a witch doctor. She came to Christ at the crusade. Uh, she, uh, and now we're burning. She's now going to bring her implements to be burned. Um, that's part of the deliverance. Um, you can keep flipping. There's a larger crusade uh, in Lubumbashi. I'll tell you more about that in my comments. Um, this is in Kaduna in northern Nigeria. Right there, they had just bombed. The Muslims had killed 79 of us a couple days before we got there. People urged us not to go. I, they said, you might die. I said, I already died when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Too late. Um, that's my dear, dear friend, Oscar Wakandwa. He's a, uh, I travel with him quite, quite frequently. He's doing evangelism there. It looks like in South Africa. Uh, and he, uh, now that's my dear friend Charles Funvake. I mentioned him. He's actually famous. Or he's kind of my quasi-celebrity friend. He, uh, can you see the pictures? Am I heading away? Um, and we're doing, uh, that's outdoor evangelism. It comes in all forms. Street evangelism. Uh, the, the, the Zambians are a very free and welcoming people. They're willing to talk to you, but they blur the lines between Christianity and animism. So they'll often, they will accept Jesus and at the same time hold on to their old tradition. So Charles is very, uh, he's a South African man, and his claim to fame was that his church was attacked by terrorists in 1993, and uh, they they shot up their church with the AK-47s and hand grenades, having taped uh, nails to the hand grenades to do the most damage. And he had a snub nose revolver, and he got himself in a position where he could return fire, and he actually hit one of the guys, repelled the attack, saved we don't know how many lives, and then went to the penitentiary and won the guy to Christ that he had shot. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. That's a warrior for Jesus Christ. Will you keep flipping? And um, then, oh, Charles, uh, and... Yes, uh, that is leadership training. That would be in Zimbabwe. That's in the, kind of in the middle of the night. Another thing we do is we do camps. We do them with couples. We do them with... Uh, youth will bring uh, people from who aren't able. Like these young men have never eaten at a restaurant. They've never eaten. They didn't know what a fork was. And so it's fun to get to know them, and then we'll breathe into them and develop leadership. Because here's the truth is we're not going to feed Africa. I mean, Africa, four United States can fit into Africa. So the, 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 the Messiah complex that we have needs to go away. We are not going to save Africa. Jesus is going to save Africa. So we're raising people up. We're seeing the new leaders. The Bible says, I think Paul says in the book, one of the Timothys, turn these things over to reliable men. These are the reliable men we're looking for who even right now are doing the work. You can keep flipping. There's some of them there. Uh, this is a, a picture of a maze uh, converter. And this is also in Zimbabwe. The guy in the center is our good friend Cosmore. And this is a game changer because it rains um, sporadically in Africa, especially in Central Africa. They have the rain season. And you must plant and harvest it in between these times. Well, in the meantime, there's no food. And so if we can harvest it, then we become the ones doing the giving. I'm thinking, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm thinking of Joseph in the time of Egypt, you know, and being the one who gives, that gives them the power. The one who has the food is the, people, is the one that people listens to, not the witch doctors, um, okay? And there's Oscar. This is also leadership training. We have been praying. Uh, the Lord gave me a verse right before we did this leadership training in uh, South Africa, that uh, it's in Leviticus, and I can't remember where, 26, I think. <clears throat> Pardon me. And it says that five of you will pursue 100, and 100 of you will pursue 10,000. And so I said, Lord, out of this small group, this is a small group like this, I said, please just give us five. And then when I did the altar call, I did everything I could to talk them out of coming forward. I said, this is going to wreck your life. You know this is going to wreck your life. This is going to cost you money. It's going to risk your life. It's going to do... And the Lord gave us, you only see four, but they're actually the Lord provided five. Which is wonderful because actually six got up 
and started to move forward, and one guy thought better of it, you know, and cut that back down, which is fine, you know. Uh, measure it twice, cut it once. Uh, there you go. And that's Shaw preaching at uh, a leadership training in Zimbabwe, recent, uh, Zambia, recently with me. It was a very good conference. Moving on, there we are uh, presenting. We did a uh, leadership training for young pastors, and the center's a young pastor. This was the Dominion Mandate Conference. It was a no uh, punches pulled, no holds barred uh Taking the World for Jesus Christ Conference. And that's one of our grads. I'm still in touch with him. Uh-huh. And there I'm giving the commencement. This guy here, you saw him in the bush. That's William Manda. He's the bush pastor that ministers to the, uh, the, uh, uh, the witch doctor. Who's still walking with the Lord all these years later? Uh-huh. Of course, you've got to have the word, right? Got to have the word. Faith comes by hearing. And there. Now these guys... Um, I had asked them, this is also at a camp, I would asked them for commitments to raise their, to be husbands of one wife and to raise their children in the Lord. None of them are either husbands or have children yet, but we wanted a commitment, which doesn't sound like a great big deal, but in Africa, it's spread out. It's kind of a, a rite of passage to have children with many women and to leave them all. Um, Spreading AIDS as they go. And we required a commitment. We said, we want guys who are coming forward. That's a game changer. These guys are going to change everything. There's something about a father. You know, you're doing father uh, men's ministry. A father in a home changes everything. Everything. That sets them apart. Again, we're positioning to be the head and not the tail. Um, Maybe that's it on leadership training. And then we'll go to... Yes, widows and orphans. There's the playground in Mondevu. Uh, that's the first sermon I ever preached as an ordained man was in this place. Uh, and I just was so honored. Anyway, that's where they play. Those are some of our children. Uh, we give away clothes. We buy them by the bales. You don't buy them clothes. Look at that. They, this just tells the story. I didn't even have to say anything. You see the sickness? Uh, probably about 80 to 85 percent of our children have uh, are HIV positive, and about 85 percent of them have mal- uh, recurrent malaria, which means that most of them actually have both. Imagine your life. How must that feel? Um, and so, again, we visit them. We minister to them. They love the horn. That's in Rwanda. <laughs> There's some of our children in Rwanda, and man, we love those kids. And you see the bags, we're going to give them food and stuff. And uh, you can flip to the next slide. Uh, uh, the old guys. This is uh, in Rwanda again. This is a place where hundreds of thousands of people, I'm just checking the age group, were hacked to death with machetes. And, uh, and he would have remembered that. And it's so dirty the business of the genocide that they still don't talk about it. And I'm told there's still people in, locked up because of it. Uh, moving on, there they are packed in. They come out. One of the good things and one of the bad things about orphan ministry is the same thing. There's lots of opportunity. You never have to, people say, well where are you going to get them from? Go to any trash heap. Go to any trash heap. There they'll be. And there's a picture of the bales of clothes. And uh, look at that. Look at how little they are. And if you look closely, you'll see she's in barefoot. And the widows, and this is in Cameroon, we're giving away a mealy meal and flour, and we'll give them, you know, we'll give them things. We do it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not a humanitarian effort. It's a gospel effort. Um, and there's Oscar, my old pal Oscar, doing the same thing. I'll tell you about him more in my in my words. This guy is a warrior. He's a former Congolese soldier. He bought. He wanted to join the army, not because of any patriotic duty. He wanted to kill his father, 
And uh, he hated his father. His father had left the family and had children with other women and abandoned him. So he was angry about it. And he says, I'll fix his boat. I'm going to get a rifle and I'm going to kill my dad. Well, the Lord prevented him. He wound up leading his dad to Christ, you know. And then he became an evangelist. That's Oscar. That's the guy. And he is doing an amazing work in Johannesburg. I mean, that guy is a real Real spiritual warrior, unrelenting. And he and I travel a lot together. Uh, there he is with his peer group. Uh, and then I think the next one is me with my peer group. <laughs> Why should he have all the fun? And uh, we were mentioning last night that the children, most of them, will never be touched. They've never been touched by a man, certainly not in an affectionate way. Um, moving on, ah, there's a lot. But if you look closely, you just need eyes to see. You'll see the sickness in some of their eyes, and you see the young girl here with the the child. She's the functional mother of that child. She's probably eight or nine years old, and she's the functional mother. They'll catch mice. They figure out how to catch mice and eat the mice. That's what they're dealing with. In rural, that's in rural Zambia. And that's a. She just slays me. This one. We built an orphanage there. That's in the Linda compound, and it was absconded with by, uh, by uh, the wrong authority, and we're trying to get it back. If the Lord brings us to mind, pray that the, the Lord will put that orphanage back to work where it's meant to be. And there's her with her sister. Just beautiful girls, made in the image of God. Uh, this girl here, so, uh, look at her. See the one shoe? One shoe is better than no shoe. Uh, that gives you a picture. And look how little and dirty. This is their clothes. That's, that's their wardrobe. But the little girl with the, uh, with the, with the covering, that's Emmy. She died. She, uh, she went to be uh, uh, with the Lord uh, a couple of years ago. And... Uh, she never knew a healthy day in her life. So, uh, so we thank God, you know, that we, we can speak to them even in this time, you know, before. Because a lot of them die. The mortality rate is it's a little bit hard to deal with, as you can see. This is not my first rodeo, but still, Emmy, Emmy kills me. There's a... They, they wrap them and put them on the back. It's a little girl. It's a little girl with a functioning baby. That's a happy baby. Flipping on. That might be the last one. Is that it? So that's what we do. And uh, I'll be available. You know, we're going to be available. And we're obviously available online to talk about this, to answer questions uh, about this ministry. We really appreciate the opportunity to minister the gospel in any effect, whether it's here or abroad. And I really want to say, you know, the Bible says, speaks highly of those who receive somebody who's traveling with the gospel. Because in receiving them, you share in their ministry. That's not a small thing. And I'm going to make a demonstration. Will you open your Bibles to Nehemiah, by the way? And I'm going to make a demonstration of how that can work. Uh, it's not what I'm going to talk about, but I have a little unfinished business. This is a... I received this from Bridge Builders some years ago. And if you can't read it, it says, All the BBC's members are praying for you, Mr. Kranz. And I got this like seven years ago. And I think that this was written by probably Sarah. This card was made by one of our young ladies in our kids' church at Bridge Builders Community Church. We are praying for you in your ministry. God bless you. Every time I hit a crisis wall, and there haven't been a few times, every time I've been miserably sick in Africa, every time a child dies, every time I've been left at the airport, Every time there's something, I don't know how this is going to, I'm going to get through this. I open up my Bible and out falls this card that's been 250,000 or more miles with me to encourage me. 
And so don't think, the Bible says that though your beginnings are small, your latter days will increase abundantly. Don't think there's anything small about the impact of a church that that sends and ministers the gospel. There's nothing small about that kind of a church. So be encouraged today. Uh, We're in Nehemiah, and we're in the first chapter, and and I, I am burdened to say, and I'm not a pastor here, but I'm a minister of the gospel and the good news. And I, I really want to give just a brief word about the passing of your wife, sir. When John the Baptist died, his disciples went and told Jesus. There's something quite beautiful about that. Nobody can walk where you're walking right now, sir. Go and tell Jesus. I want to talk about spiritual battle. I want to talk about spiritual battle. I want to talk about spiritual battle, not from a place of escaping, but from a place of overcoming. I don't want to talk about getting out of trouble. I want to get through trouble. I want to be, I don't want the, I, I, I want to be a problem to the enemy. And we're going to talk about, I don't know, a handful of uh, spiritual attacks that are prevalent in the Bible. It's something that we don't do very much in the United States that we're big on in Africa. We understand the idea of conflict, an enemy. But we don't tend to understand that very much in the United States. It's more about kind of relationship and feelings and that which is all important to some degree, but it doesn't equip us for the actual battle at hand. And we're in the book of Nehemiah, and if you know about Nehemiah, he would have been deported, or probably his father or grandfather would have been deported when Babylon fell, or when Jerusalem fell to Babylon. Now here's the thing, and this is worth saying, it's very important in fact, that Babylon was unlike the Assyrians and that they would take the best of the best. Remember Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? They took the best of the best, and they left the losers behind, the people who couldn't fend for themselves, who couldn't take for themselves. They gleaned from the very best, and it was those who were left behind in Jerusalem uh, that, 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 that Nehemiah is concerned about. Nehemiah is doing great. He is the cupbearer to the king. He's like kind of royalty. And I've done a little bit of history on this. He would be very, he's maybe the richest, most influential Jew in Babylon. He is a made man. Things are going well for Nehemiah. But he begins to ask about those who've been left behind. And we should be able to do that also. And he finds out that they're in great distress and reproach. And then he sat down, he wept, and he mourned for many days and was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That tells us something about the heart of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, even though he's doing great, he's got lots of money, he's a made man, his family is in good positioning, he is burdened for those who were left behind. Now, Somebody should be burdened about those who are left behind. To the rest of the world, we, there's not a person in here who is not wealthy. And so he's concerned about this, and he begins to pray about this. And I'll, I'll diagram his prayer very briefly. He declares the glory of God. He declares the glory of God. He starts with the glory of God. From then he acknowledges sin. He doesn't say, how can a good God allow this to happen? He doesn't, have you ever heard that? How would God allow anybody to go to hell? That's not a good question. The good question is how doesn't he let everybody go to hell? You know, because if you know the glory of God and you know the nature of sin, then you know for real everybody belongs there except for Jesus Christ. He acknowledges sin, and not only that, he clings to God's promises. You can't cling to a promise unless you know a promise, beloved. Learn a promise today. Cling to the promise. All right? Amen? And then he closes his comments by saying, Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, what is the spiritual attack? Seduction. He is being tempted to stay behind and take care of his own bacon. His life is good. He doesn't need to go to Jerusalem. But his idea of prosperity is to get to Jerusalem to be a blessing to somebody else. 
That is so different from the notion of prosperity in the United States. It's different from the prosperity gospel, in fact, which is neither prosperous nor the gospel, by the way. He has this idea that he has this idea that to be prosperous is to bless you is to bless somebody else. That's prosperity. And so we see that the first attack is seduction. And, and, and to break the grip of seduction, we have to leave Babylon. We have to leave the place of safety, the place of fear, the place of comfort, the place of security. But this is a very important thing that I'm bringing up, and I'm laboring with this for just a few minutes, because the seduction has invaded the lives of the American church. I'm fluent on both sides of the ocean. I know my people there, and I know my people here. We are a seduced people. When I go to Africa, what do you think people pray for me the most? Yes, they say, oh, be careful, Ron. They all say the same thing, which is, I appreciate it. But honestly, I'll get this. Ron, we please, we want you to come back safe and sound to Springfield, Virginia. Well, then why am I going? If that's a stated goal is for me to get back safely, why am I going to begin with? Because I want to prosper. You see, because I want to be prosperous, the goal isn't to get back safely. I'm already safe. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in, in Jesus Christ. Neither he- height nor depth, the principality of your power. I thought I was safe. <laughs> Suddenly they got me in. I'm dangerous. There's nothing dangerous about what I do. The most dangerous thing I can do is stay behind Babylon where I die and cook slowly. Seduced people are never victorious. We see this in the, uh, hold your finger there, and go to Psalm 91. We see this in the uh, temptation of Jesus Christ. Of course, you remember well that Jesus was taken up to a high temple by the evil one. What's he do? He says, cast yourself off this temple. And then he adds these words. And we say that Satan is quoting scripture. He says, he will give his angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But that's not what the scripture says. He is, first of all, this is just my Loving pastoral way of saying, stop saying the devil's quoting scripture. He's not quoting scripture. He's cherry picking scripture. Because here's what the scripture says. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. What are the ways of Jesus but the ways of the cross, the way of sacrifice, the way of blessing other people? What are the ways of Jesus? He leaves that the devil... Deftly steps over top of that, but look what he steps short of. He steps short of this. The young, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. So the enemy says nothing about trampling on the serpent. I wonder why. Well, yeah, because he's the serpent. But see, he also knows that the one certain way that he will never get trampled on is if you stay in Babylon. You have to go out of Babylon, man. You gotta leave the safety place. And I'm not saying you need to go to Africa with me, but you gotta go somewhere. Because I can tell you, I've said this before, and oh gosh, I've nearly been thrown out for saying this. The devil sleeps in on Sunday morning. He doesn't care about what happens in here, but when we leave here, that's when the game begins. Okay. I'll make a point about this, and I'll, this, I'll, I'm laboring with this, I realize, and I won't labor this much on the other points. Um, but let me, let, me, let me just do, maybe I'll be wrong about this. I want to play a little game with Scripture. Not game with Scripture, but game with the family. I'm going to quote some Scripture, you're going to fill in the blank. He himself has said, I will never leave you, nor so that, We, so that we may, isn't that interesting? He himself, uh, let me quote it. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That's what the scripture says. But we only know the part about where he doesn't leave us or forsake us. We only know the part about his safety. The safety is not a destination. The safety is the vehicle that drives us out of Babylon. Somebody ought to say amen to that. My gosh. I amen that. Is it okay to amen yourself? 
I don't know the customs here. I'm a little, I'm a little new here. I, you know, I, I'm an African preacher. I don't know what's going on. Is that okay? I, uh, beloved, we have all the safety we need when Jesus came out of the grave. We don't need any more safety than that. The second attack, turn over to the second chapter. And this is a common attack. And all of these are common attack. In fact, there's no temptation that's not common to man. Uh, and this is the temptation of being ostracized or made fun of, being mocked. Anybody been made fun of because of their Christian walk? I can't imagine being faithful and not. There's about only one way to not be made fun of. And it's to be unfaithful. And in the 19th verse, we see sound ballot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you were doing? Will you rebel against the king? You know, this is a passing point, but it's worth making. Where was, where were these enemies when, when Nehemiah was in Babylon? They didn't care about him when he was in Babylon. The, the battle begins when you leave Babylon. That's just a little something for free. And they say, will you, will, you, will you rebel against the king? It depends on which king you're talking about. You see, there's always somebody who's going to throw civil government in your face. And if you don't think so, protest an abortion bill, uh, an abortion mill. People tell you about Roe v. Wade and the bullet. Which king do you want to obey? Yes, I am rebelling against the king that says that's okay. Yes, I am. Which king do you want to obey? But they're laughing. And Nehemiah, the answer to this kind of attack is quite simple. Nehemiah says to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. Notice that Nehemiah takes his reward and approval from God. That's the only solution to being made fun of. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other, hate one and love the other. There's no way that you can love them both. Get that out of your mind. What passes for love so many times is little more than self-preservation and amalgamation. Notice Nehemiah has a short discussion with the enemy. But if you look at chapter 1, he has a long discussion with God. For every five words that I say to God, maybe I get one word with the enemy. It's not between me and the enemy. Seek my approval. Seek your approval, beloved, with God. The third attack is that of intimidation. Flip on over to the fourth chapter, and we'll spend a little bit of time in these next couple of attacks. By the way, for those of you who don't know, have never been to Africa, um, our services go... Uh, about three to four hours. That's about right? Yeah, yeah we usually go three to four hours here. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't be late then. Uh, um, in, the, in the first verse, we see the element of intimidation. But so, I'm in the fourth chapter, but so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samarians said, what will these feeble Jews be doing? That's interesting. That's a lot of intimidation. Have you ever had somebody incite an army against you? I mean, that's heavy, man. That's like, we can read right by that. An army. He's saying, look at them. And they're, they're, who are they? There's just a handful of guys there. He's not in Babylon anymore. He doesn't have the king's protection there. He's just out there, man. That's intimidating. And notice the next element of intimidation. It's very important. He says, the enemy says, will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in day, one day? Will they revive the stones? What's the word you keep hearing? They, they, they. He's trying to, when the enemy wants to intimidate somebody, he tries to separate them as though it was your work. As though it's you all by yourself. Will you, will you, will, will bridge builders into witchcraft 
that's going on in Hyde Park? Will bridge builders in the heroin epidemic in Hyde Park? No, but Jesus Christ can and will. Jesus Christ is able. But see, the enemy wants to make it about your fight. They're bigger than you, but they're not bigger than our God. And Nehemiah understands this. And so he turns his attention back to God in what we call an imprecatory prayer. If you don't know what an imprecatory prayer is, brothers and sisters, look it up. They have their place. In verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you before the builders. So we built the wall. What happened to the enemy? We don't even know. It doesn't matter. They're irrelevant. Just like the ten spies who went into the promised land who were not Caleb and Joshua. They were irrelevant. Don't worry about those guys. They don't matter. In the face of intimidation, so we built. That needs to be the theme. The problem is, is that too many of us are waiting for the dust to settle. We think when the coast is clear, I can go forward. But we don't read our Bibles well enough. In 1 Corinthians 16, and, uh, verse 9, it says, A great and effective door is open for me, and there are many adversaries. They cohabitate. They cohabitate. Say, oh man, if the government would let us. They're not going to let you. You don't ask the enemy for permission. Y'all watch this. Some people might have watched the Super Bowl. I didn't catch it, but I don't think that the that the Patriots let the Eagles win the game. You have to take it from them. You have to actually do it. Take the promise. Take the command. So we build. If God has given us a promise, if God has given us, if He's given a command or a promise, we don't ask permission for anything. We ask no permission from the enemy, not whatsoever. When Jesus was crucified, he was crucified at Calvary's cross. What was he surrounded by, friends or enemies? Come on, he's surrounded by enemies. Why? So they could get a front row seat at his resurrection. I don't want to miss out on that. I don't want to miss out on that because I ran away because somebody intimidated me. Don't run away, young men. Don't run away from the conflict. Stand fast. Seven times I've been across, uh, walked across no man's land between Zambia and Congo. Seven times. Five times they were fighting. They were physically fighting. The first time I preached in Lubumbashi, they were rioting outside. I mean rioting. It was hectic. I've been left at the airport put out of the airport, trying to find my way in Zambia, all by myself. I've been sick, more sick, Africa sick, in Cameroon, not knowing what was going to become of me. I saw, I've seen children die. So we build. We build the wall. My friend Oscar that I pointed out to, uh, the Congolese soldier, former soldier, Right now, he's been winning people off the streets of Johannesburg from drug addiction and witchcraft. The very stuff that's going on here. And he's been winning them. And guess how the enemy has said thank you. They broke into his church and left human bones on his altar. And they cleared that out and they came back and they lit a fire. So we build. We build. Brothers and sisters, stop waiting for the coast to be clear. It ain't going to get clear. It's going to get clear when Jesus clears. It's going to get clear when we step out, when we start moving forward. So we build. That's what I'm talking about. And it's no different in the United States. By the way, I should tell you, I'll relate a story uh, that may mean something to you. I just like to tell it. But it applies to this. I, I was in Burundi couple years ago, around Christmas time, and uh, it was so hectic. They were fighting. They were at war at that time, and our host fled the country. And that's interesting when your host flees, flees the country. But somebody else picked us up, by God's grace, Oscar and myself, 
And we began the work of evangelizing and discipleship, and we stayed there for a while and saw new believers and all of that. And there was a lot of demonic and a lot of that stuff, and which is part and parcel of African missions. And uh, and one, they moved our hotel, they moved the restaurant up to the fourth room. There were only two of us in the capital city, and. In the, in the whole hotel, we actually outnumbered the staff, and I always like to say I still couldn't get service. You know? <laughs> Anyhow, so we, we, we're, we're, they moved it up on the fourth floor because they didn't want the bullets to get in to the restaurant. But they put me on the second floor. I said, wait a minute, I'm more likely, you know... Never mind, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you didn't figure that out, you know, if you don't get that. Anyway, so they moved that up, so we spent our time up on the fourth floor, and still they got a bullet through, uh, an AK came through, uh, and and I got a great picture of it. Anyway, I, I said, oh, look at that, and Oscar said, yeah, we should take a picture of it. It's the kind of guy, he says, let's take a picture of it, you know, AK-47, no weapon formed against you will prosper, man, come on, you know, and so we go down on Christmas morning in this war-torn country. And they're the new believers, and we're baptizing the new believers in Lake Tanganyika. And the witch doctors are up in the hill placing curses on us. And while we are there in the lake, a hippo comes up on us. Well, we rebuke the hippo by the grace of God. The hippo went away, and we continued the baptism. So we built. Nothing should steer us away from the work. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we built. In passing, and this is just an in passing point, in uh, the seventh verse... You see, now it happened when Sanballat to Tobiah, the, uh, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were being closed. They became very angry, and all of them conspired to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. This is an attack. The attack of confusion is a real attack. And I want to tell you what, why this is really important. And I'm just going to say this in passing and in brief. Because Nehemiah spots it. He says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them by day and night. That's an important word, them. Because I'm speaking very transparently now. One of, this is a frailty of mine. When things don't go with, well with me, particularly in church, I then start to become suspicious of my Christian brothers. I'm not proud of that. We set a watch against them. Too many times when something goes south, I think, what's Jay doing? Why is he, yeah, he, he's, you know, I, I start to think ill of my brother. He is not my enemy. That's right. You're not my enemy. You're not my enemy, but you start to, and the enemy loves this kind of confusion. Wrapping brothers against brothers, fighting one another over non-essential drivel. Where's the unity? Bridge builders. I love it. Bridge builders. I disagree with lots of theological points that are out there. But they are not my enemies. My pre-mill, semi-Pelagian friends, God love you, are not my enemy. That's not my enemy. But there are people who think like that, and I think like that sometimes. When I'm under some sort of attack, I think, well, you, I don't know, guy. You know. Let somebody else bring a sax in here. I'll think, oh, they're competing with me. What? Really? Is that what this is about? Let somebody bring a guitar. Let somebody else. Let somebody else bring a violin. Hey, I play the violin. It's your brother. Set a watch against them. In the 10th verse, this may be one of the most important things as far as spiritual attacking that goes on. And I think it 
deserves a little bit of time. So I'm just going to take a few minutes, and it's the attack of shame. Now, I'm going to just be very direct and very almost uh, be very pastoral. Have you ever felt shame? I hope so. You say, huh? Yeah. Who in us, who in among us hasn't got something they should be ashamed of? But it's an attack that perpetuates, that's not designed to. The Spirit of God moves people to repentance, but not to perpetual sorrow over old sins. That's an important thing. And I'm going to develop that for just a second. In the 10th verse, it says, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. By the way, that's the stated goals. Cause the work to cease. So it was, when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us ten times, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. This is very critical. There was so much rubbish they couldn't build. Everywhere they stepped. You ever worked in a dirty environment? I used to frame houses with my uncles when I was a young man, when I was a kid. And they insisted that we swept and swept and swept the house. We had to keep sweeping and keeping it clean because you trip over things, you make mistakes, you hurt something, you can't build anything. So much rubbish. What is the rubbish? It's the fallen wall. Why did the wall fall? Because of their sin. You just have to read the first chapter. Their sin. And so everywhere they step, they're stepping in some failure, some fault, some place of shame, some mistake they've made. And they're tripping over it everywhere. There's so much rubbish. And not only that, the Jews came ten times to tell them, there's always somebody to remind you. You'll always be, and it might be you, but there's always somebody to remind you of what you did ten years ago, seven years ago. You call yourself a Christian. Yahweh, no Christian. That's always, ten times, that's nagging, man. I mean, ten times, who tells you something ten times? That's constant, unrelenting. This is how shame works. It never stops. It's always coming. Shame, shame. Do you remember? I remember when you. I remember when you. I remember when you. This goes on. Well, what do you do about that? I'm going to tell you in a second. I'm going to give you an an example from my own life about how pervasive shame can be and how unrelenting it can be. I was at a family get-together a couple years ago. And a young, precocious boy that could have been me 40 years ago uh, got plucky. Got, I think he was high on sugar. And, uh, and, 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 and I guess he's about his age. Anyway, he says, he says to me, he says, at least I didn't use drugs. Now, you, nobody has any reason to know this about me, but I'll tell you. In 1985, May of 85, the Lord delivered me to this day, from alcohol and drug abuse. He he delivered me out of that. But my question to you is, what does a 10-year-old boy know about my drug use from 33 years ago? There's always somebody. He had to have been told that. I didn't tell him. Somebody told him about that. They will actually disciple their children generationally to remember your sin. Yeah. 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 Yes. You know? I mean, my gosh, his parents were in grade school. His parents were your age when I got off drugs. What what did they know about my drugs? There's always somebody. There's always somebody that remembers 20 minutes or 20 years ago who remembers. There's always this memory of my sin, and it never goes away. And in case I do forget, somebody's there to remind me. Well, thank you. What do you do? And I studied the scripture. I looked at this word and I said, what do you do with it? I mean, what do you do? What do you do? I've, I've kind of gotten through some of this. Now I don't understand. What do you do with shame? The answer is you do nothing. You do nothing. Look at the words of Nehemiah. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren. Remember the Lord. 
Look, man, when somebody remembers me from 30 years ago, their memory is too short because they need to have a better memory. They need to be able to remember 2,000 years ago where my sin was, where my sin was nailed to a cross. Now tell him about my sin. Tell him while you're at it, go down to the grave and see if you can find the body. There is no condemnation of those who are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Somebody ought to say amen. There's a freedom at the cross, man. You'll remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight that propels you forward and fight for your brethren. Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. He handles the sin. He handles the shame. It's put away. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it. No more. I'm not upset about that at all. I was in, I was in Cuba a couple years ago, and a young girl had seen my tattoos. And uh, she was from a very, very uh, Pentecostal, which by my preaching style you might think I am too. But, uh, um, but she, had a, uh, she was a very legalist. And she came to me, and she spoke perfect English. Lovely girl, Tammy. Wasn't her name, but that's what I call her. Tammy. And she said, I see you have tattoos. I said, yes, I have tattoos. And then she began to chide me about my tattoos and tell me what was the matter with my tattoos and where it says in the Bible. I said, yes, well, I, I see that. But the Lord gave me a certain discernment. You know how sometimes you're counseling someone and you realize they're not, she's not talking about my tattoos talking about her tattoo and I said Tammy where's your tattoo and she says it's on my back and so I started to take her through the scripture and tell her about the delivering work of Jesus Christ in all of its completion and she was like moving but she wasn't free you know when you're counseling somebody and they're like they're not free. You can see it. It's right there. She's, she's hearing me. She's agreeing. She's making a mental assent to what I'm saying, but she's not home. And I said, Lord, please give me something. Give me a word that's going to set her free. It's going to put a stop to this. That she'll never bear this ever again. And the Lord really gave me this word. I believe he gave me this. I said, Tammy, you don't have any tattoos. And she said, no, no, I, I, I can show you. You know, I said, you have it. All your blemishes, all your failures, all your sins were nailed to the cross of Christ. They're at the cross. You do not have any blemish before God. So this is how I knew she was free. And when I told her that, it's still sweet to me to remember. She began sobbing. But it was just an uncontrollable, this hardened girl began sobbing. I mean, just, I mean, snot, you know, and the stuff. She just, she gave up on all vanity right there before me. And, uh, she was, and she said, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And I said, Tammy, of course, I was preaching that evening. I was preaching in the morning, so I was preaching that evening. I said, well, you realize you've just changed my sermon. I've got a, my, my notes have just caught on fire. And uh, so I'm going to have to, but I'm not going to mention you by name, and I'm going to veil you. I'm not going to uncover you. She said, you can uncover I'm free. She says, she, she started preaching. She said, you can bring me forward. You can bring me out of front. You tell my name. Show my back. She's free. She sounded like me. I said, oh my God, you can bring it forward. You give me the mic. I'm free. There's always somebody. There's always somebody. And sometimes that somebody is me. Sometimes that somebody is me. I'm going to take my seat. I want to mention one other thing. is the attack of compromise in the sixth chapter. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, I'm in verse 1, heard that I rebuilt the wall. There were no breaks left in it. I want to pause there. Look at how much success Nehemiah is having during all these attacks. No breaks in it. He's building the wall. Things are coming together. 
It doesn't matter. None of it is having any effect at all against the work of God. Do you know that none of the weapons formed against God's work can prosper? He's still advancing the kingdom. All of the, Everything that God wants to happen is happening. Verse 2, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together. Is this not fascinating to you? That these are the same guys who laughed at him, the same guys who made fun of him, the same guys who wanted to kill him, the same guys who wanted to cause confusion, the same guys who accused him of rebelling against the king. They now want to meet. This is the last vestige of the defeated enemy. Is compromise. I can't get you any other way. I'll get you this way. I'll get you to compromise. Let's meet together. Let's just have a powwow. We call it faith-based ministries. And we can just agree about this and, you know, leave Jesus off the table. We can have, we're doing some general humanitarian good. But we're doing it without Jesus. That's not good. Do you understand that the church is the minister of grace, not Caesar? What's the solution? It's the words of Nehemiah. He says, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? So close and take my seat. Bridge builders, why should the work cease? Why indeed? You're doing a great work. Don't compromise. Don't settle for anything less than what God has given you. He's given you the keys of the kingdom. Move forward. There's no reason to compromise. The words of Jesus Christ as a 12-year-old boy, I must be about my Father's business. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The compromised church is a lazy church. The church should be all hands on deck. Everybody should be engaged in some way or another. This is not a spectator arena. All hands on deck. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail, says Jesus. Think about that through. You don't have to have a very good imagination. The gates are stationary. The church is moving forward. We should be pounding on those gates, pushing the matter, driving the matter. What we tend to do in the United States is say, I wish they would leave us alone. They should be saying that of us. We should never stop. We should be an unrelenting army, constantly pressing the king's rights, King Jesus, into every affair of life. Because he's worthy. No king, no kingdom, no gospel. We stand for the king. We stand for his kingdom. Don't compromise. Don't stop. Don't quit. Stand fast. Be encouraged. Go forward and risk. Leave Babylon. Seek your reward and approval from God. Build in the face of threat. Know the enemy. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren. Don't stop. And as I take my seat, I don't want to forget my card. Might have another quarter million miles. When Jesus was crucified, right in the shadow of the cross, the enemy came to arrest him with swords, shields, lanterns, the whole thing. Officials, all the power of the civil government was coming. That's intimidating. And he would have been able to see them coming in the dark from a long way away. He could have easily slipped away. But he stood fast. He didn't move. And as they came close to him, you remember this, I'm telling you a story you know. He went forward. Now, I don't know how many people in here have been arrested. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I have. It doesn't go like that, does it? And he went forward and he says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what he said? He said, I am. 
He is an italicis. I am. I am the great I am. I am. And when he said that, don't miss this, the enemy with all of their power, all of their weapons, all of the civil authority they had, fell backwards into the ground. Am I to understand that the powerful name of Jesus has lost his power today? He still has power. The only reason the enemy is not falling backwards into the ground is because we're slinking into the shadows. Will you bow your heads? Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worship. Oh, Lord, we make haste and worship you. And he said, if now I've found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord pray, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us as your inheritance. O Lord, your kingdom deserves Hyde Park. Your kingdom deserves this place. Your kingdom deserves our hearts. Your kingdom deserves our families. Your kingdom deserves the people who are shooting dope. Your kingdom deserves the people who are casting spells. The Wiccans in this area. Your kingdom deserves them. So I'm praying that we'll go get them on behalf of your kingdom. I thank you for this place for bridge builders. Pour out your blessings here. Encourage the family here. I pray that you'll encourage the family, particularly the elders, the leadership here. I pray that you'll do a mighty work here, one that we can't imagine, that we couldn't even think of, that sometime generationally we'll look back on this and say, what a great work you did here. Because you're a great God. Even the stones cry out, Lord. How much more should we? We cry out to you in thanksgiving and praise. I pray your blessing to him who is able to keep us from falling and present us unstained at your glorious throne, belong majesty, honor, and glory forever. We pray this in Christ's name.